Hello, and welcome to Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. In this podcast, we bring you insights and perspectives from government leaders and executives around the Beltway and beyond. From Washington Exec, I'm Ryan Alcorn. I'm here today with my co-host, Bradford Grossman, and our very first guest on Executive Perspective, Sumit Srivastav. Sumit Srivastav is an accomplished executive and proven business leader with more than two decades of experience in the government IT industry. As president and CEO of Array, he provides overall corporate leadership for the company's growth and delivery strategy, which has included a successful graduation from the 8A program and leading a management buyout in 2018. Array has become a leading provider of application solutions to federal agencies. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bradford. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, let's let's get right into it. So our first question for you is, so tell listeners about how you first got involved in the government contracting world and how you ended up where you are today. Uh, absolutely. I am actually a second-generation government contracting uh, individual. I joined my dad's company, Anstec, in 1991, um, and when they were about four years into the 8A program. But at the time, I, he started the company when I was a junior in high school. Um, so I'd sort of been living through those early stages uh, vicariously, I guess. Uh, but he had just completed about a $4 million year, and he kept pushing me. you got to come into the company now. We're growing. You know, It's time for you to get involved. Um, but it turned out to be an amazing decision, and uh, I spent the f- next nine years working for him, um, learning uh, a, a tremendous amount about, at the time, what the Small Business 8A program was like, um, experiencing highs and lows of the program, um, and worked through that. First couple of years, he actually kind of kept me in the back office, you know, didn't let me out. Um, so I spent time, uh, first four or five years, learning contracts, finance, accounting, pricing, HR proposals, sort of the whole back-end engine of an organization, and in areas that are rather unique at times to the federal marketplace. Um, but then, you know, we ended up in a, in a scenario where he, uh, he had a stroke uh, in 1996, about five years in. It was the same year we were graduating from the 8A program. It was the same year we were making a major investment in real estate with a really nice building on Spring Hill Road. Um, and forced me to sort of step forward, frankly, probably unprepared to step forward. I I was kind of in the process of trying to get there. But that put me right at the forefront of clients and working with employees and, frankly, working through uh, a rather stressful situation. He came back amazingly strong. Uh, People who would have met him years later would have never known that he had had a stroke. Um, But that also began the process for us to start thinking about how we transitioned the company. We ended up... um, uh, in 1998, deciding it was time to sell, um, retained a firm, and uh, then you know another great experience uh, in leading the uh, effort there and, and the management briefings and everything you go through. Ultimately, we sold to Keen Federal Systems at the time, which is now NTT Data, uh, and became really their first major acquisition um, into the federal landscape. And um, so that was another great eight years. I ended up staying at Keen, ended up. Uh, learning a lot about the mid-tier side of the world, having graduated uh, from Anstec side on the small business 8A side, um, spent that time working uh, federal, state, and local, and actually for uh, about a year even running the uh, sales and marketing for their North American commercial operations. So, you know, pretty incredible variety of experiences. But it also, um, about eight years in, they had gotten acquired 
I spent about a year there and decided, you know, I really would like to go back to that more family-owned environment, a smaller environment, and sort of take all the learnings from the Anstec days and the Keen days as a small mid-tier transition story um, and see if we could apply some of those lessons learned to what might be our ideal company. And spent um, about six months talking to maybe 100 owners. Um, As a matter of fact, Washington exec and and, uh, some of the early days of uh, what JD was doing was a tremendous help. I'd say half half of the people I met as owners were actually through the network that I have leveraged through the people that work for Washington Exec today. Um, but that have ultimately got me to Array, where I think we had an environment, they were about 15 to 18 million in, in size at the time, where I could really take uh, and build a team and execute a strategy on how to transition a company into the mid-tier state. And that sort of has led us to today. That's the, over 10 years now that I've been here. And as uh, you mentioned earlier in the opening, uh, we ultimately bought out the founder of the company and the other majority owners as a management team back uh, about a year ago now. Tell us about a time in your life when you really had to stretch yourself in order to learn and to grow. Yeah, a great, great, great question there. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Uh, I tell everybody, and I, I say say it almost every day as I'm talking to folks, that um, that the, the success stories, you know, when you when you have those success, it, it's a lot of fun. There, You do learn a lot, um, but there's nothing like going through um, some of the downturns that we faced at that time. And, and, and for everyone, those are the really the best learning experiences. Uh, you know, as you said, I'm, I'm rather young, um, you know, that has impact in terms of how other people in the company look at you. So I felt certainly from the day I started that every single day you're trying to prove that you belong, uh, which means a lot of time away from family, evenings, weekends, right, always showing up um, because I did not want someone to say that I was there just because I was his son. Um, But, you know, when he had the stroke, yeah, jumping in, getting in front of clients, something I wasn't very experienced at. I didn't have, you know, you look a lot of uh, owners today and small business owners in particular, they sort of come out of programs, they have experience, they've worked at big companies, and they have that entrepreneurial bug, and then they jump out. Um, but they've had that experience. I didn't have any of that. I never worked on on a client site, uh, always was the corporate guy. Uh, so that was a framing around that in terms of my brand. Um, so it did, you know, give me some tremendous opportunity really to learn. I frankly make a lot of mistakes. I tell people that some of the downturn that uh, Anstec had um, in the latter part of the 90s were natural downturns expected out of the 8A program uh, that almost everyone experiences, but some of it was really the fact that his parochial love for me put me in a position, and frankly, we probably needed a professional manager at the time to really run the company and help us navigate. But in the end, you know, it was a tremendous experience learning how to deal with making payroll when you're in a negative growth situation and having cash flow issues when your uh, key leadership are moving to other companies, in some cases building very successful companies elsewhere that you're partnering with, um, turning contracts over where your key PM is the primary client relationship owner, but now they work for the new prime and you've just become a staffing vendor to them. I mean, there are just so many things that happen um, and ultimately solidifying that and putting us in a position that someone like Keen was willing to come. And we actually had two offers on the table. One is a very well-known multi-billion dollar company today in the federal landscape. We chose Keen at the time. Dad chose Keen because he felt that it would really give the management team a chance to succeed and transition uh, versus going into a much bigger company. But uh, almost everything that I think I feel like I execute today is 
driven and defined by some of the learnings, I think, from that period. Now, you've been in the industry a long time, more than, more than 30 years. What has changed most about government contracting since you joined? Yeah. Um, you know, two things I'll focus on. One, I think, is um, uh, what I'll call an enterprise or transcendent to, like, any government contractor. And, I, and then I'll focus on one that uh, has had major impact to the small business, minority-owned community. The, the really big one to me has been... Uh, the advent of the consolidated buying capabilities that um, agency IDIQs and GWACs and, and sort of everything that comes with that. Um, if you really think back, we've only been in that world about 20 years. 97, 98 was the first time that agencies really began to put that that type of a vehicle out there. And it, it made sense. There's a lot of buying efficiencies uh, and whatnot. But now that, you know, I don't know what the most current numbers are, but they're close to 70% of all buying happens through these vehicles, and I think it's growing. Um, and when you're looking at an industry that has the size that we do, um, and then you think about 50, 60 vendors are getting the consolidated buying through these IDIQs and GWACs, you really are picking winners and losers at that point. If you've missed, for example, the Alliant train and you're not one of those winners, uh, you're waiting a long time before you can get on. And it's really changed the strategy. You have to now think about where are the next IDIQs coming out and actually position your strategy around getting access to those vehicles before you even think about you know, which clients. I mean, they, in effect, define sometimes which clients you want to go after. Um, and so I think that that one's been pretty large. And, and um, the second one really is a two, in 2007, the recertification rule that Congress put in place that mandated notifications um, for small businesses, a change in control, basically, and exits for people. Um, probably a good intention, but there's significant unintended consequences with that. Historically, leading up to 2007, 8A small businesses could graduate um, via scale-based model, really leveraging the program, the socioeconomic programs and what they were intended to do, and give those successful companies a chance to exit. Uh, the 2007 rule completely shut that down effectively right there. You have to be a pretty unique, you know, unicorn-like business uh, to be heavily small business or, minority, you know, SDVOSB or whatever some of the socioeconomic categories are and have a solid exit to a strategic buyer. Um, so that changed the landscape significantly. It meant that you had to think much earlier in your life cycle about strategy. And, and now I'll I'll suggest those are all good things, right? It forces people to think earlier about strategy. How am I really going to transition? Because I no longer can just transition through winning a bunch of contracts that don't have relevancy to each other. Uh, and so much of the 90s, or at least my experience, which is late 80s, early 90s to you know the time the research rule came in place, was around watching companies that were really just vehicles for contracts. They weren't necessarily building capability or client intimacy, or some of the traditional standard ways that companies differentiate in the marketplace, it was all just a grab, you know, gra grab as much market share as you can, regardless of the kind of business it is. You can be an infrastructure company, and you can be a, an apps company, and you can do uh, advisory support, and you can do acquisitions. I mean, you can do everything, construction support, and send logisticians over into theater. It didn't really matter, and frankly, that's just a mini version of most of our federal players anyway. But when you're only 20, 30, 40 million dollars, it effectively means you have no stickiness with anybody and you have no um, uh, real capability, you know, five past performances of one kind of thing that you can use. To me, that was 
that was the big change. The, before then, you could get to 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 million and still have an exit. Today, you have to really have done that the right way in a way for a strategic to buy you. Um, the private equity side has changed that a little bit now because I think private equity is taking a bit more of a risk with those small businesses with the idea that they can get them in a more undervalued state. Uh, work with them, work with the management teams, help them transition, and you get a good one out there and you can make a really, really good return. And, I, and so I think that has changed a little bit recently, but for the last 10 years, it's been tough. Now, as a mid-tier organization, how do you see your company evolving in this ever-changing marketplace? Yeah. Well, that kind of lines up perfectly to the, to the last question. Uh, given that that was how we viewed the world, myself and the rest of the management team, as we came together in Array at, in 2008, 9, and 10, we built our whole strategy uh, around um, how you react to that. So I, I can go back, and uh, frankly, when we were going through our sale process where we had some private equity looking at us, we had, um, uh, of course, uh, ultimately what became a management buyout by using uh, leverage, we, what we pitched was around a 2010 uh, board meeting presentation that said, here's how we're going to make it work and here's why it will work. And it was all around, you know, client intimacy, uh, differentiating on uh, a depth of relationship, uh, technology uh, that was kind of added on. So if you look at our core, our core philosophy is know your client admission really well such that you become an invaluable trusted partner, really know how to manage programs regardless of the technology underneath, and really know how to solution those programs. And if you get those layers right, technologies can come and go underneath. Uh, it's very hard to differentiate. I mean, you hear we do Agile, we do DevSecOps. Well, everybody's saying that. What really is a differentiator? But if you can walk in and say, I know maintenance operations in defense logistics domain, I know your problems, I know how to solve those problems, and I can manage those technology vendors, um, there's a tremendous amount of value there that I think is gained. And so that effectively has been our, our approach is we will be a very strong knowledge player in the defense logistics domain, focusing, in, in our case, we started with the Air Force, now growing into the Army, uh, focusing on the applications layer. So another ring, if you think about the bullseye, our bullseye is that defense logistics domain application layer with a tremendous amount of mission competency and knowledge. You put that together and you can kind of wrap anything else around it, but that's kept us in the game and it has helped us with the small business transition as clients have been willing to work with us to take small business programs, but because of the mission value we're bringing, find ways to get to us that they might not otherwise have done. Now, shifting gears here, we know you grew up in Fairfax County. You went to school locally at George Mason, and you've certainly stayed active. What are the initiatives you're working on with the GMU GovCon board? Yeah, it's uh, actually one of the more exciting things, I think, for me um, that obviously are outside the scope of Array, but at the same time really tightly tied to you know, the passion. So I, I actually got involved uh, at George Mason uh, from a, uh, an advisory perspective in the business school around their innovation and entrepreneurship initiative with a specific focus that I, I really was passionate about this idea that uh, having been in the business almost 30 years, seeing a lot of small businesses in 8As grow up uh, over time, uh, seeing the impact of the research rule of really figuring out how to develop better curriculum, frankly, at the ed executive education level, how to create better curriculum 
that could take young startup entrepreneurs in the Fed IT services space and effectively get them boot camp like experience um, using practitioners, using master entrepreneurs and master CFOs and people that are doing the work, co-teaching effectively with the academic side, but effectively taking a um, a layer of standard MBA kind of teaching but putting a strong filter of the unique elements of our industry. And that naturally dovetailed with a major initiative that um, was already getting off the ground at the time with this Center for Government and Government Contracting that's now in place. And so my area has really been focused on um, the the side of the small business mid-tier transitions and, and whatnot. But, you know, when you think about the center, we really the looking at it, and it's the first of its kind in the country that is taking a business angle view to what this um, industry is. It's a half trillion dollar marketplace. It's a mature industry. It's got its own rules. Um, Why not make sure that we are building case studies that focus in on the unique elements of our industry? So if you're in a strategy class, why not look at what caused SAIC to consider splitting into the two? What caused Lockheed to consider divesting itself of a certain part of the business and combining it with Lidos. Why not make those case studies that are the HBR level type case studies or HBS level case studies um, versus, you know, an AOL Time Warner or, or whatever. So the idea is to build out content in a more academically rigorous way on case studies like that. So trying to, you know, get involved there, uh, build out more curriculum, both at the executive, but even at the undergrad level. So recently we've launched a, um, a concentration in the accounting side where accounting students in undergrad can actually come out already understanding agency-based ledgers and all the unique elements of working inside of a federal or state and local agency and and how that's different. Um, The contra to that, or not the contra, but the augment to that uh, is we're now working on something similar that would do that for uh, accountants coming out that could work in a federal contractor and already know what DCAA is and the FAR and DCMA and so, you know, all those acronyms we like to throw around. So that's all happening. And then we're actually in the fall going to launch a minor in government contracting um, for the undergraduate program. And so that'll be available based not only to business school, but really anyone who's coming out uh, that wants to get a bit of that unique element of the GovCon 101, right? Uh, everything from how business really works, how the congressional and, and, and executive side sort of integrate and, you know, what is the Congress's role in that and, and of course, executive agency execution um, to, you know, basic marketing, business development, you know, what is capture management, something that we love in, in our space but no one else really talks about in, in the commercial industry. So it's it's building on all of that and taking us, in effect, from an anecdotal industry to one that is data-driven and, and with academic rigor and, and research. For younger listeners tuning in who might be considering a career in government contracting, how does George Mason's program prepare them for the industry? Sure. No, that's a great question. You really have to start with the demographic of George Mason, right? I mean, you guys have grown up here. Um, As have I, I've been in Fairfax County and went through the Fairfax County system from second grade onwards. Uh, The... The fact is that you know 200,000 of our alumni, I, it would be hard to imagine that 40, 50,000 aren't working in government or government contracting. Uh, Mason's always been a home for the veteran and sort of the GI Bill community. Um, it's, it's just natural as based on the positioning here in Northern Virginia that we are not only have an alumni base and a parent base that is heavily connected to the community, but we have people coming through. So therefore, students coming through already 
have somewhat of an inclination. They already know who Booz Allen is or who SAIC is or Lidos or GDIT or whatever. They know them in that context, not as airplane manufacturers or, you know, whatever that the rest of the country might know them as. So I think there's also already a natural inclination. And that would be the reason I would suggest that if whether you're an engineer coming out of the Volgino School of Engineering and you plan on joining one of these shops as a, a Java developer, whether you're coming in as a marketing major or an accounting major, getting that underpinning of what is this industry, what makes it unique, how can I use this to walk right in in my first job and be able to sort of outperform right out of the gate because I'm, I know what a color review is. I know what pink teams and red teams already are. So when they pull me in technically for that and say, hey, I need you to work on something, I know what an RFP and how it works. And, and so that value proposition, I think, uh, becomes pretty important. It may not be so much so if you know, you're sitting out in Denver, right, or Austin or Cambridge or whatever. But here, you know, if we follow the regional economics, you know, one third of the student population is going to find their way into an industry tied to government some way or another. And I think this just gives you a natural leg up, along with, you know, the new digital certifications. If we talk about our specific industry with IT, Mason's been one of the first to come out with that also. So um, I think in, in those respects, it makes the initiative very exciting. And I think it's also um, something that we'll be leading the pack in going forward. Now, stepping away from your, your philanthropic and professional careers, what do you like to do for fun on the weekends? Yeah, I would, three buckets. Um, there's the me time, uh, which is heavily about uh, um, books. I'm, I'm an avid reader. Uh, you know, Try to get through one book a week. Um, sometimes I don't quite succeed. I have a colleague here who's done 132 so far this year, so I'm not going to catch him, but, you know, that's... Uh, and and that, what are you reading right now? Well, I, you know, I like to read non-traditional or what I'll say non-business stuff. So, you know, it really is the me time. It's... Uh, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so I, I think I over 600 books I own in the Star Wars domain. Um, you know, I reread stuff, so I've read all of Game of Thrones before the HBO series started, during the HBO series, and I, again recently. Um, so it's it, a lot of it is a sci-fi fantasy um, domain. I love uh, sort of the thrillers, the you know the Vince Flynn's and the David Baldacci's, the John Grisham. So I read a lot of that too. And so usually my uh, I'm getting a book a week coming in and reading that. There's the history side is is another one. So recently, um, you know, started picking up books. So there's always uh, timeliness. You know, with June sixth, uh, there were a lot of new books that came out on on D Day and and the Normandy invasion. And so you know, I've read a couple there that. Are just quick reads, but you know, work that. But the core passion is the sci-fi fantasy. Um, a close second passion, frankly, is sports. So I probably, as uh, some of the other fo- of your colleagues know, um, probably end up at 50, 60 sporting events a year. Uh, love going to live sporting events. Go with, use it as an opportunity to hang out with the kids. So it's you know, uh, some of those are on weekends, some are during the weekday. Uh, but a real big homer when it comes to the local sports community and and support kind of all the way to arena football and going to, um, you know, uh, cap one arena for that. Um, but that's, that's it. And then I have four kids at home. So, uh, uh, two are kind of out of the house, not quite, uh, two are still in the house and under our watch, but, uh, we all hang out together quite a bit and we spend a lot of time doing things together. So, and one final question, um, who is someone an executive or otherwise who you look up to and admire? Yeah, I, that's the 
the easiest one you've asked is uh, absolutely my dad. Um, his story is is like many stories in the immigrant community. Came over, you know, to to study and sort of better himself, better his family. Uh, we landed in Chapel Hill at North Carolina in the early '70s when he was doing a master's in computer science. But you know, you watch the struggle, you watch the desire. Um, I, you know, saw how they launched the bootstrap the company. But even before he started the company. To get prepared, he was working full time in a job. He was um, doing his master MBA part time and working as an adjunct uh, professor in computer science at Mason, all to sort of get himself ready. Then he starts the company and you know goes through all those struggles. Um, you then see this amazing rise where, during our rise in the '90s when I was working for him, uh, but you know really he was the driving force with other people. I was, as I mentioned, in the back office. Um, he ended up becoming the national SBA on Small Business Person of the Year. Was appointed to lead a White House uh, Clinton White House Commission uh, effort on small business and minority business issues. Um, and while he's doing all of that, he's still giving the family time. He's still. Um, you know, even while he's making ends meet, he's still sending money over to his family in India who were still living in, you know, extreme poverty um, with sort of a, a contract he had with pretty much every nephew, niece, you know, grandparent, a grandchild equivalent of his, you know, the grandchildren of his older brothers and sisters that if you went to college, I would pay for it. Uh, and he must have put 20, 25 kids through um, over in India that has changed the tra- trajectory of multiple generations for many of these families and so he did that and you know while he's doing all that and building the successful company he was starting up uh, as a co-founder with a couple of families the you know one of the first major Hindu temples here in northern Virginia that's out in western Fairfax County and it's one of the more successful ones in the region but sort of led that effort and you know both from a financial perspective but really with his time and so you see all of that, and um, you don't quite always appreciate when you're the kid, right? You, um, but as I got under, you know, working for him, and you see all the stuff he's juggling, and then really the key out of all of that was watching how he did not treat anyone differently. Like it didn't matter their socioeconomic standing, it didn't matter where in their organ in his organization they sat. Um, he really treated everyone the same. He built relationships that were of depth uh, in nature. And so, frankly, from those days onwards, I've always tried. I mean, it's still working on it and, and may never get there. But, you know, the goal is to try to emulate quite a bit of what I learned from him on how he treats people and focused on uh, um, really what matters, I think, for folks. And so, you know, that, like I said, a very easy, easy answer on that one. Well, uh, thank you, Sumit, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. Thank you, Bradford. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us on Executive Perspective Behind the Business. Visit our website at www.washingtonexec.com for more content and episodes.